0: Good morning, as Todd said, my name is Timothy, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's a privilege to be with you, uh, grateful to dive into God's Word together. This morning we're continuing in our current sermon series entitled, The Good Life. It's a study from of the Beatitudes from Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount. For those of you who are here for the first time, I think it's important to note, hence the, the series title, that the Beatitudes are a picture of the good life, the life that is approved of by God. They are Jesus' picture of a person who is truly blessed, truly happy. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the seventh of the eight Beatitudes. And as is our custom, I'm going to ask you now if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning we're in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 9. This is God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons Of God. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. We ask that you would now speak to us through your word, that as we encounter this text, we would at the same time encounter you, the living God, and be transformed. God, we ask that this morning you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. A couple months ago, Arthur Brooks published an article in the New York Times entitled Our Culture of Contempt was a piece about the profound divisiveness in America today. And the article Brooks points out that political scientists have concluded that our nation is more polarized than it has been at any time since the Civil War. And this is evidenced by the fact that One in six Americans have stopped talking to a family member or close friend because of the 2016 election. Millions of people now organize their social lives and their news exposure along ideological lines to avoid people with opposing viewpoints. Now, there are obviously countless theories as to why this divisiveness exists, but I doubt Many of us here would disagree with the pervasiveness of its presence. Our country is in desperate need of some peacemakers. Amen. What's interesting about this division in our country is that it exists in spite of the fact that all of us know that division is unpleasant. We know Jesus is right when he says that happiness and peace are intimately acquainted a recent study by the nonprofit More in Commons shows that 93% of Americans say they are tired of how divided we have become as a country. And yet, although we hate how divided we are, we nonetheless pursue division like an addict does his or her next fix. My hope this morning is that our text might empower us at least a little bit, to get unstuck, to hopefully grow in making peace. Two things that I want to look at this morning that I believe will help us on this journey. First is our aversion to peacemaking, and then second, our inspiration for peacemaking. So let's begin. First, our aversion to peacemaking. As Jesus and Brooks point out, nobody really likes conflict Happy are those who make peace. And yet, for some reason, very few of us ever succeed in cultivating very much of it. So why is this? In his article, Brooks goes on to point out something that is both fascinating and horrifying, and that is that the division in our country is not so much rooted in our ideologies, but it's rather rooted in our view of our opponents. Let me explain. You see, in normal, healthy conflict, one simply disagrees with another's point of view. But in unhealthy conflict, when we're talking about contempt, one disagrees with the other person altogether. And this is what is dividing our country, Brooks argues. It's not the belief that that I am right and you are wrong, but rather it's the belief that my ideology is based in love while yours is is based in hate. Recent research shows that the average Republican and the average Democrat have a level of contempt for one another that is comparable with that of Palestinians and Israelis. Each side thinks it's driven by benevolence, and the other driven by evil and motivated by hatred. I have to be honest, uh, I was extremely convicted by this article, especially in light of our text this week. I I picked up the article because I was going to read it for them, right? I had some people in mind who needed to, to hear this. And yet I realized quickly that the article in many ways was about me. I realized how confident I had become in my own motives, my own benevolence, and how often I am convinced of the evil on the side of my opponents. And I realized how that when I think this way, I am breeding this culture of contempt. Do you do this as well? In what ways are you fostering divisiveness through believing the best about yourself and the worst about others? We we clearly have a problem church but the question remains why why in spite of the fact that we know peace brings happiness do we wage war again and again and again i think the apostle paul gives us the answer in philippians 2 he says do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit but in humility count each other more significant than yourself I think Paul's words speak right to the heart of our aversion to making peace. The the aversion exists because we have a wrong view of self and a wrong view of others, or more specifically, we have a too lofty view of self and a too lowly view of others. We fail to make peace because we do everything out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, and we count ourselves more significant than others almost all the time. It's that too lofty view of self and too lowly view of others that gives us the freedom to wage war, to to seek to dominate and destroy those around us rather than make peace. Because we believe we are right and we deserve to win. And social media is the most profound evidence of this way of thinking. I saw this ugliness play out in my own life a couple weeks ago. One of my children, as children often do, lost an item of clothing. And this was the last straw for me. And I responded to this child as if they had lost this clothing item on purpose in order to make me mad and that they were delighting in my suffering. Maybe I'm the only parent who's ever done that. But then... Something strange happened. A few days later, Daddy lost not one, but two of the kids' shirts. But the thing about it was, I actually wasn't that mad at myself. I could list five or six reasons why I lost those shirts. My motives were really good in the whole thing. I was just trying to be a good dad in the midst of my metal-worthy fathering. Some shirts got lost. We can see how Our view of self and others sets us up to fail at making peace. Which brings me now to my second point, the inspiration for making peace. What is it that will motivate us to become a peacemaker? Before I dive into the dynamics of how, I want to first make sure we are clear on what a peacemaker is. Because there's this common misconception that a peacemaker is simply someone who is conflict-averse. But the kind of peacemaker that Jesus is talking about is not simply an easygoing person. It's not a your peace at any price type of person. We've all met someone like this, someone who will simply tell you whatever you want to hear to make the conflict go away, even if what they're saying is untrue or or maybe even wrong. These people just can't stand conflict, so they're just going to figure out a way to make the conflict go away. When I do premarital counseling, I always ask the soon-to-be bride and soon-to-be groom about their latest fight. And I'm always worried if they don't have a fight to share. Because the truth is, the absence of conflict is not a sign of peace, but rather it's normally a sign that one of the people in this relationship is dead. They're not even present. Uh, They are avoiding conflict to a fault. The grossest picture of this kind of false piece has to be Michigan State University's handling of Dr. Larry Nasser. I think most of us are probably familiar with the story, but Dr. Nasser was a serial child molester who molested at least 251 children. But what makes the story even more revolting is that there were countless people and in institutions that were aware of Dr. Nasser's crimes but chose to sweep them under the rug, all for the sake of keeping the peace. And we could ask every single one of the victims if they felt like keeping silent, cultivated peace for them, and they would most certainly say no. Therefore, we know that peace at any price, conflict, avoidance, people-pleasing is is not what Jesus is after here. So what what then is a true peacemaker? And the key word here is is peace. The Greek word that Jesus uses here finds its origin in the the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom. And in studying this word shalom, we can begin to grasp the breadth of what it means to to make peace. For those of you who aren't familiar with this word shalom, the word has way more color to it than the English word peace. It it represents not the absence of strife, but signifies wholeness, completeness, soundness, health, safety, and prosperity. It it even carries this idea of permanence. It's in light of this definition that we can see that the peace that Jesus is calling us to is not simply conflict avoidance, but rather it is the pursuit of shalom. It's the pursuit of wholeness and well-being for others. Which means, although... It may sound like an oxymoron that to be a peacemaker in a biblical sense is to be a fighter. So often in order to make peace, we must wage war. Just like the victims of Dr. Nasser needed someone to wage war for their peace, to go to battle for shalom for them, we as peacemakers must wage war for the shalom of others. Church, what, what are you fighting for? What are we as a church fighting for? Are we fighting for our own rights, our own desires, our own comfort? Or are we truly fighting for the shalom in the lives of those around us? Because that's what it means to be a peacemaker. So Now that we know that what a peacemaker is, how do we become one? I think the answer, again, lies in the blessing of the beatitude. Again, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Called sons of God. What does Jesus mean when he says that peacemakers will be called sons of God? And how does this inspire us to be a peacemaker? I think it's important to note here that there is a reason that the text says sons and not sons and daughters. And it's it's not because Jesus is misogynistic. It's because in the first century, ancient Near East, sons, and particularly the eldest son, was extremely privileged. The eldest son was entitled to everything that belonged to the father. All that was the father's would one day be his. So we can't miss the cultural ramifications of what Jesus is saying here. To say that we are now called sons of God is an explicit reminder of how you and I, male and female, have been adopted into the family of God. How all the riches of our Heavenly Father will one day be ours. No doubt this adoption was the greatest act of peacemaking by the greatest peacemaker of all time. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes this process whereby we became sons of God. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What Paul makes plain here is that Jesus Christ, hungry for shalom, picked a fight. He picked a fight with the division between us and God. It was a bloody battle. It was a costly battle, a battle that ended up costing Jesus his own life. And yet it was a battle that Christ won. And through winning, he secured for us once and for all peace with God. It's the good news of the gospel. But we can't miss from this text that that was not the only victory spoil that came from this battle. Not only did this result in peace between us and God, but Paul says at the same time, Jesus's victory tore down the dividing walls, the walls of contempt that we have between each other. Through his blood, verse 15, he made one new man in the place of two. He created a unified body, a body that is marked by peace. And this was no small task in the first century, in the early church. We think that we have it bad, but we should look at the conflict that existed in the scriptures between the Jews and the Gentiles. They hated one another. And yet through the blood of Christ, They were drawn together and became one in this body. And yet Paul knows that this oneness that was created in Christ was something that was going to be very difficult to maintain, which is why a few verses later he charges this group of unified people to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He's saying you've got to fight for it or you will lose it. We have to go after this Peace that Christ has purchased for us. British theologian John Owen offers a, a helpful illustration here for what this looks like in the church. He talks about a man walking through the woods, gathering sticks for a fire, all different shapes and sizes, some long and thin, some short and thick, but he binds them all together with one rope, and in one bundle he easily carries them home. Is that not a beautiful picture of the church? What a varied bunch we are here at Christ Central Church. All different shapes and sizes, and yet, how will Christ carry us home? He binds us together in the bond of peace, which is the church. Knits us together, causing us to become one. So how then do we practically do this? How do we live this out? First and foremost, I think I want to quote Paul once again, Colossians 3. He says, we must let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. What does that mean? What it means is that as we dwell on, as we ponder and meditate on, celebrate and rejoice in the peace that Christ has purchased for us, it begins to change us. It begins to rule us, transform us. And as his peace is on our hearts and on our minds, it's that peace that begins to flow out of us. And we find ourselves pursuing and fighting for that peace, that shalom in the lives of those around us. Paul is saying that as we experience the peace of Christ in our hearts, we will be motivated and empowered to live unified and not divided lives. Live as one body. Beautifully diverse, yet united in Christ. And maybe even more practically, I want to share personally that I have found that the daily prayer liturgy that we use here at Christ Central, that's available on our website, to be invaluable as a way of praying peacemaking into my life. In this liturgy, towards the end, we find the prayer. Of St. Francis. And every morning when I pray this prayer, I'm amazed by how much more I'm inclined to look for the absence of peace, the absence of shalom in the lives around me. And I'm amazed at how this prayer often motivates me to fight for that shalom that very day. Here's how it works. The prayer begins, it says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. God, use me for your peace in the world around me. And then it tells you what to look for. It says, where there is hatred, So our first job for the day is to look for hatred, which, as Brooks points out, is not going to be very hard to find. And when we find it, we don't judge or fight back, but as the prayer says, we sow love. And then the prayer says we look for injury. In this sense, it's talking about offense, where someone has wronged us or another. And we don't come and demand justice, but we counteract it with grace. We sow pardon. You get the idea. It goes on. Where there is doubt, we sow faith. Where there is despair, we sow, sad, we sow hope. And where there is sadness, we sow joy. And it's this prayer that gives me an eye to the doubt, the despair, the sadness, the injury, the hatred that is all around me. And it motivates me to go after it with love and joy and grace and pardon. I've been amazed by how much more I'm inclined to enter the day searching for shalom as I pray this prayer over and over and over again. I encourage you to do the same. I think all of us know too well that Arthur Brooks is right. Uh, we're living in a culture of contempt. But what if, what if we, the church, began to lead by example? While in seminary, I had the privilege of sitting under Dr. Steve Brown, and he shared this story in class one day, and I want to share it with you. Dr. Brown shared how he and his family developed a pattern of bringing wayward children into their home. Kids that had been abandoned or abused by their parents would come and live with the Browns for a little while. And one time, one of these kids was with the Browns on a family beach. Vacation, the vacation was going wonderfully. The kids were getting along. everybody was having a great time. It was one of their best family trips ever. And towards the end of the trip, this young girl asked if she could go on a walk on the beach with, with Dr. Brown. And so as they w- walked down the beach, Steve looked down, and, and to his surprise, he saw tears streaming down this girl's face, and he, he couldn't figure out what was going on. It had been such a wonderful trip. He had no idea why she was crying, so he put his arm around and asked her and said, "What's wrong, sweetheart? Are you okay?" And she looked up at him, and and through tear-filled eyes, she said these words. She said, I wish I had a family like yours, and I wish I had a dad like you. Church, because of the peace that Christ has purchased for us, we are now called sons of God. We are in the family. What if we started acting like that? What if we began to model for a watching world what it looks like to make peace with one another? I I truly believe this is our unique opportunity that we have as a church in this culture of contempt. A group of people who are very different, diverse, coming from many different walks of life, yet empowered to love one another like family. And if we do that, if we do that, I truly believe that Durham will, like that little girl, say, I wish I had a family like theirs, and I wish I had a dad like him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would remind us more and more of this peace that you have purchased through the death of your son, so that we might be called sons of God, and that that peace would rule in our hearts and flow out of us to the world around us, that we would be those who fight for shalom. And God, would you empower us not just to fight but to win, that we would cultivate shalom in this city and around the world. God, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.